Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. I just want to honor the sound team uh, because uh, the sound team are amazing because this is working. So thank you so much. It is a joy to be with you. I'm just going to get myself sorted out here. So feel free to talk among yourselves for a second. Okay, that's enough talking among ourselves. <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much for having me. Eric, Candice, you guys are amazing. Studio, it is a joy. This is Julian and my first time with you, but I feel like we're amongst family. So thank you for having us here. Thank you for hosting us so kindly. Our kids have loved being here in Greenville, so we're just really grateful for you. Um, it's a joy to have kingdom family wherever you go, isn't it? And this is just amazing. So I'm feeling like I'm speaking to my own family. Julian and I have the joy of leading a church in Boston called The Table. And um, this just feels like an extension of what we're doing in Boston. So thank you for having me. I'm going to jump straight into something that I feel the Lord has for us today. Holy Spirit... We invite your presence. May we hear the sound of heaven this afternoon, I pray. Open our ears. Open our hearts that we would encounter your voice, King Jesus, and that we would be forever changed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A few years ago now, Julian and I were in the incredible city of Glasgow in Scotland. Actually, before I tell you this story, let me do something that I try to remember to do at the beginning of a message, if I'm new somewhere. Um, I was born in Iran. Um, I'm ethnically Armenian. I moved to England when I was five, grew up in the UK. When Julian and I got married, we moved to South Africa for almost five years, and now we're living in Boston. So hopefully that clarifies for you my accent so it won't be a distraction to you for the rest of this sermon. Okay, now that we've got that out the way, a few years ago we were in the beautiful city of Glasgow, we were just walking around the city, and we heard this noise filling the streets. And Julian and I started trying to follow the sounds to figure out where it was coming from. And we turned a corner and we saw, and I want you to really imagine this moment with me, we saw this band of Scottish drummers and pipers. And they were everything you would imagine. There was wild hair and wild beards. There was kilts everywhere. There was Scottish pipes being played in in a way that was filling the streets, in the way that went bef long before we saw them, we could hear them. And we stood in that place, and you know when there's music that makes your entire body reverberate with the frequency of the sound? We were standing there totally captivated by the sound that they were making. And I know even as I'm saying this, so many of you will be able to imagine it because there's such a distinctive sound of the Scottish people. There's 
such a distinctive sound of that kingdom that you don't even need to be there to understand what we saw and what we heard. And in that moment, I felt the Lord speaking to me about the sound of his kingdom, the sound that reverberates from heaven, the sound that Jesus reverberated with everywhere he went because there is a noise that the heavenly realm is making and we as the people of God, the work of his hands, you understand. I'm not saying the people of God as the church, I'm saying the people of God as all humanity in creation have been designed to hear that sound and reverberate with that very same sound that encounters us and transforms us. And I wanna preach today from Matthew chapter five, feel free to flick there if you would like. But in Matthew chapter five, there's this moment where Jesus begins to make the sounds of his kingdom. The gospel of Matthew is a gospel of the kingdom. In the gospel of Matthew, we're introduced to Jesus, not just as teacher, philosopher, prophet, but primarily as king. And he comes with the royal lineage of a king and his whole life is mapped out with the declaration and the demonstration of his kingdom at hand. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, there's the almighty battle of the kingdom in the cross and the resurrection where the king defeats his enemies entirely and he rises from the dead victorious. And then right at the end, he deploys his people to be representatives of his kingdom. And in Matthew chapter five, it's the establishing of the constitution of the kingdom of heaven, if you like. That's the moment where Jesus defines what his kingdom is about. It's like that moment with Scottish drummers and pipers raising their voices and playing their music and a distinctive sound is made. And this is what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who were persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In that moment as Jesus begins to make the sounds of his kingdom. The sound is released. And the trouble is, the sound makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, Sometimes we're so quick to read scripture as if it makes sense. And yet in that moment when Jesus spoke these words, these words made no sense at all. Imagine a constitution uh, established on these ideas. Uh, Jesus is releasing a sound. It's difficult to understand. It's a challenge to the hearers. It's in fact an offense to those because it's upside down. And that is a good introduction to who Jesus is. Because he's the king of an upside down kingdom. 
See, the reality is Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd who had every anticipation of a Messiah who would come and restore the fortunes of Israel by defeating their enemies, by putting the Roman Empire in its place, by lifting up the Israelites over and above any other worldly power. They were anticipating God sending the long-awaited Messiah to pick up arms and destroy and annihilate anyone who'd ever persecuted Israel, they were not anticipating, blessed are you when you are persecuted. They were not anticipating, blessed are the merciful. They're anticipating, here are your weapons, stand up and fight. God has heard you. We're about to annihilate anyone in your path. The sound of the kingdom of God was upside down to them. They heard Jesus and the crowds flocked to him. Why? Because there's anticipation in the air. Because they recognize, hey, have you heard about this guy? Hey, he seems to be important. Maybe this is the one. They gathered to him because there's something of hype around him and they want to draw in and they want to hear from him. And then he says everything in a way that leaves them slightly disappointed. He's speaking words that make no sense. And sometimes as people who've maybe been in churches for many years, we might hear these words and act very religious about them as if they make sense. But if we're honest, they make no sense. No kingdom on the planet is establishing its constitution based on these verses. No kingdom is going to say, hey guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate poverty from now on. We're going to invite any enemy of this state to come and give us a beating. And we're going to celebrate when that, right? There aren't kingdoms on the planet doing that. Why? Because this sound is upside down. It doesn't make sense. Jesus is inviting us to encounter a kingdom where the last are first, where the least are greatest, where there's power not in strength but in weakness. He's inviting us into a kingdom that really doesn't make sense because God does things in a way that no human being can quite fathom. And if you try to do the math on how and where God is going to show up and you do it with worldly wisdom, you're going to fall short because God is the king of an upside down kingdom. I wonder as I preach this, if as people, maybe you're in this room and you would consider yourself part of the kingdom of God, I wonder if we as the people of an upside down kingdom make too much sense if we represent the upside down nature of the kingdom we belong to. Uh, I wonder this for myself, often Gillian and I have this conversation, if a worldly accountant saw our finances and said, brilliant, thumbs up, I am in agreement with all of your decision making, I wonder then if our lives truly represent the upside down nature of the kingdom where we are told to give generously and abundantly, where we are told to trust God for our finances, not our bank balance, where we're told that you cannot outgive God, right? So if a worldly accountant who doesn't believe in Jesus looks at my finances and my decision making and thinks it makes sense, 
then I wonder if I've gone wrong somewhere. I wonder if when my non-Christian friends see me uh, forgiving people who deserve my forgiveness and staying offended with people who don't deserve my forgiveness, and they say, that makes perfect sense. I wonder if I've gone wrong somewhere because you and I are invited to belong to a kingdom where we don't forgive those who we deem worthy of forgiveness, but we understand that we have been forgiven much and therefore we overflow with the forgiveness that we have been shown. You're getting what I'm saying. We belong to an upside down kingdom. Are you and I upside down? Or perhaps the reality is that he's the one, the right way round. And we've been holding the map upside down all along. And he comes to show us, you know what? It makes much more sense if you turn it around. It makes much more sense if you give generously. It makes much more sense if you love lavishly. It makes much more sense if you honor in disagreement. It makes much more sense if you forgive unreservedly because there you will find life and life in its fullness. The challenge, of course, is that Jesus' kingdom isn't just upside down, but it's offensive. Let's listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Oh my goodness, the amount of pressure that would be taken off Christians if we didn't run around trying to somehow defend the way God does things and just felt comfortable in the reality of a kingdom that will offend the wisdom of the world. Brothers and sisters, he goes on to say, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were noble. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And then we come back to Matthew 5. And again, I think we read these verses in Matthew 5, these lovely Beatitudes, and sometimes we treat them as a sweet little poem. You have these little memory verse cards, maybe, that you've got them printed on with flowers around the words. It makes it very sweet. The reality is there was nothing sweet about what Jesus was saying. He was picking up spiritual torpedoes and throwing them into the crowd. That's the reality of what he was doing. We misunderstand if we think the religious leaders of Jesus' day stood there and wanted to applaud this beautiful poetry that Jesus came out with. They wanted to kill him when they heard his words. Why? It's because Jesus is not only king of an upside down kingdom, but he's a king of an offensive kingdom. It is an offense to the religious spirit. Jesus' kingdom literally comes against 
everything that religion stands for. Religion will tell you it is not your poverty of spirit that God requires, but your moral behavior. Religion will tell you that the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to those who've been forgiven. It will tell you that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are able to keep the law. Religion will tell you that your ability to keep the rules and wear your purity ring and uh, do the things that people expect Christians to do and maybe have a bumper sticker on your car saying hallelujah or something like that and your attendance at church is what's going to get you into heaven. All of that is a lie because religion tells you that it is possible for you to be good enough and I want to tell you it is never possible for you to be good enough. Paradoxically that's the good news of the gospel that God came to people who could never earn their morality enough to warrant being in his presence and he said to them come to me anyway that is his invitation to you that is his invitation to me not because we've earned the right we could never but because he is a God who releases forgiveness on the undeserving The religious spirit is all about what you can earn. It's why the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, hated him. Because their entire status in society was built on, we have earned more than the rest of you. We have been better than the rest of you. Therefore, you should listen to us because we are more important. And Jesus comes into that space and he releases the manifest of his kingdom and his kingdom doesn't say blessed are the rule keepers it says blessed are those who are poor in spirit it doesn't say blessed are those who are moral it says blessed are those who are pure in heart because they will see God it says blessed are those who are willing to be persecuted it's blessed are those who are hungry because they'll be filled it's offensive there's this moment in Matthew 15 where Jesus says to the crowd, it's not what goes into you that defiles you, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. And I love the disciples. He's saying a sentence that's literally at odds with what the Pharisees, the religious leaders, would teach their disciples. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, come up to him. They're so funny because they say to him, did you realize you offended the Pharisees when you said, I think he gets it. Sometimes that's what the church is like. We read something that Jesus has said, or we see the way Jesus is encountering people in our communities, and we want to draw him aside and say, let me coach you a little bit here. Do you understand that what you're doing or saying is offensive? I think he knows how to lead people better than we do. He offends the religious because he will not play by their rules. But the kingdom isn't only an offense to the religious, it's an offense to the wisdom of the world. There's a moment in Matthew 13 where Jesus is in Nazareth and we're told that he actually can't do many miracles there because the community that are there are doing the math according to worldly wisdom and therefore they will not trust him. They start saying, hey, isn't this Joseph's boy? Isn't, we know this guy, we grew up with him. Like how dare he think he can come and teach us things? We, we were boys, we, we played football together or whatever it is, we played baseball together. They, they're doing the math, 
They've walked with Jesus, or so they thought, and so they have decided according to worldly wisdom that it doesn't make sense that Jesus should walk with authority. The problem is Jesus' kingdom is consistently at odds with worldly wisdom because he will not ever match up with the wisdom of the world. The problem for us as believers is many of us are trying to see kingdom promises come to pass through worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom cannot sustain kingdom promises because they are completely upside down from one another. You have to pick a system and stay with it. The kingdom is offensive. And the thing about Jesus is that he wasn't intimidated by the religious spirit. And he wasn't intimidated by the wisdom of the world. He just continued to make the sound of his kingdom. Everywhere he went, the sound was the same. The sound of the love of the Father towards men and women. The sound of redemption calling. The sound of forgiveness right at hand. The sound of a kingdom that brings healing to the broken. He consistently made that sound even as he heard whispers and mutterings and mumblings from the religious and from the worldly who wanted to kill him because they didn't like what he was saying. I grew up in a family that's pretty musical and um, we, we used to have a couple of tuning forks in our house. Anyone know what a tuning fork is, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Those things that are metal, you hit them on something and they make a frequency and they all are designed with a specific frequency. Whether you take a tuning fork on the top of a mountain or in the base of a valley, it's gonna make the same sound because by design, it makes one frequency. And the powerful thing about tuning forks is that whatever they come in contact with begin to reverberate with that very same frequency. That's how they're designed. So the sound of the tuning fork suddenly gets passed onto the table or onto the chair or onto whatever it's come into contact with. The reality of the sound of the kingdom that Jesus made meant that everyone who came into contact with him, who genuinely allowed Jesus to encounter them, started to reverberate with that same upside down, offensive and transformative sound of the kingdom. I think at the moment where in Luke chapter 10, I believe it is, that Mary and Martha are in a house. Jesus is, they're hosting Jesus in their home and Martha is doing what would be acceptable in Jewish society, which is she is serving the men as they sit and talk through important things. That's how Jewish society would work. And yet Mary, her sister, uh, simply won't submit to cultural boundary lines and norms and gravitates towards Jesus because she's so captivated by the sound that is coming from the king of his kingdom. And so he, she comes close to Jesus and we're told that she sat at Jesus' feet, which isn't about her proximity to Jesus, but from the context of the words in Acts, we understand that when someone sat at someone's feet, they volunteer, volunteered themselves as a disciple of that person. So Mary leaves what is culturally normal in serving the men and she crosses that boundary line and effectively 
comes to Jesus, oh, offering herself as a disciple of Jesus. And what happens? Martha says, Jesus, get Mary back in line. There's rules that need to be followed here. There's appropriate boundary lines. And my sister embarrassingly has crossed them. And Jesus says, She's chosen the better thing and it will not be taken from her. There's this beautiful moment where again, he offends the sensibilities of those around him and Mary comes in contact with him and begins to reverberate with that same sound. She will not be put off by the naysayers. She won't be put off by those who say it can't be done or it shouldn't be done or not that way or get back in line or how dare you think of yourself in this way. You're much smaller than that. Get back, you're too big for your beat, none of that will stop her. She's heard him and she's encountered him and now she wants to be like him. And you and I are invited into that same place because it's an upside down kingdom, it's an offensive kingdom, but most wonderfully, it's a transforming kingdom. Jesus wasn't simply a teacher in Matthew 5, hoping for the best with these crazy words. If he's simply a teacher, these words mean nothing at all. But he's not teacher, he's savior. And in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we encounter God who is not just teaching us who we can be, but is transforming us into who he made us to be. In the cross and resurrection, we encounter a place where our brokenness finds healing and wholeness. We encounter the possibility of pain being healed. We encounter the reality of God unraveling things that have held us back in sin that has carried us in cycles and ultimately defeating the worst enemy, death itself. That's the reality of the gospel. This is why I said that Jesus isn't really, he's not primarily about modifying our behavior. He's primarily about resuscitating our hearts. He's not asking you to behave differently. He's asking you to come alive. And he's not just preaching at the dead and going, oh, they're unresponsive. He allows his body to be broken, his blood to be poured out so that he will defeat what you cannot defeat so that you can be resuscitated back into fullness of life. It's a transforming kingdom. I love this quote by a lady called Jackie Pullinger who says, Jesus didn't promise the lame man running shoes in heaven. He said to him, get up and walk. This is a reality of the kingdom that we belong to where we're not just hoping for one day, oh, that's terrible that you're suffering, sorry, can't do anything about it. But one day, the good news is, when you die, everything will be great. That's not the message of the kingdom of God. The message of the kingdom of God is, repent for the kingdom is at hand. It means it's right here, it's touchable. That which is upside down and offensive, but if you'll allow it, transforming is right here. You can grab him, you can encounter him, you can be shaped by him, you can be changed by him, and you can be made alive by him. That's the message of the kingdom. I want to finish because I'd love to do some ministry time with a story of Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, there's this island that was full of beautiful but deadly women called the Sirens. And they were famous in the region for luring men who were on boats 
to the island and killing them. And uh, there's two different groups that pass the island in Greek mythology that have very different approaches to how to pass the island safely. The first is Odysseus. And Odysseus and his team of guys on the boat, um, Odysseus is curious about the sirens. He wants to hear their sound, but he, he's wise enough to know that if he actually obeys the sound, they're all dead. So he says to his shipmates, what I want you to do is put wax in your ears so you can't hear the sound. All of you will be deaf, you'll be fine, you'll be able to go on as you are. I want to hear the sound, but I don't want to act on what I hear. So he asks them to bind him to the mast of the ship so that he'll hear the sound, even if he's consumed by the sound, he'll be so restricted that he won't be able to act on that which wins his heart. And so they do it. The guys fill their ears with wax and Odysseus is bound to the mast of the ship. And as they pass by the island of the sirens, the sirens begin to make the sound that they make. And the men who are deafened are none the wiser. And Odysseus, he hears the sound. He's overcome. He's drawn, but he's bound so he cannot act on that which wins him. Another group passed by the island, uh, and a man called Jason is leading that group, and Jason has heard the stories too. And so what he does is he employs a man called Orpheus, who was famous for making beautiful music to join on the adventure. And Jason's method is this, that when they pass by the island and the song of the sirens begins to uh, sound, Orpheus will begin to play his music. And because the music that Orpheus plays is superior to the sound coming from the sirens, they will pass by and their hearts will not be touched because their hearts have been overcome by a superior sound. And so as they go past the island and the sirens do their best with all their melody filling the airwaves with their sound, Orpheus plays a sound that is so vastly superior that no heart is one to anything at all except the beauty of what Orpheus releases. I want to say to you, studio community and visitors alike, religion will tell you, bind yourself in any which way that you can. Your heart will be one to things, but at least you can modify your behavior. I want to tell you that will lead to death. Jesus doesn't tell you to bind your behavior. He tells you, listen to the sound of my kingdom. He says, listen to a superior sound because the heavenlies are roaring with the sound of love and affection and forgiveness and belonging of power and transformation. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and me to live inside us and to flow from within us. It is a superior sound of his kingdom. And I'm trusting even in this moment, won't you stand with me, but I'm trusting even in this moment as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we welcome his presence yet again and we say king of an upside down wonderful transforming kingdom won't you encounter us again I want to invite you spirit of God to come and fill this room with the sound that you are making I want to invite you spirit of God that tangible affection would be felt in this room, that tangible forgiveness would be felt in this room. I want to invite you, just close your eyes, feel free to lift up your hands. 
If someone from the worship team is able to come and play, that would be wonderful. And I want to explain why I invite worship team to come and join me in ministry moments, because I believe worship carries anointing and has magnetic power to the presence of God, because He is attracted to us as we worship Him. And so I love co-leading in moments with worshipers, because we're inviting the presence of God to fill this space. And so we invite you, Spirit of God. Come and bring healing as you want. Come and bring joy, whereas there has been anxiety and hopelessness. The sound of the kingdom of heaven is a sound reverberating with hope. There is no place that the kingdom of God touches that remains hopeless because it is infiltrated with hope in every cell, in every frequency, in every sound that the kingdom makes. And so I speak hope to the hopeless. I speak hope where there's been despair. I see some of you have been shackled by despair in this last season and God is coming to you right now with an encounter, an infusion of a hope that is going to change the way you see everything in your context right now. The kingdom of heaven is full of joy. There is so much joy in the kingdom. God is not intense, somber, moody, angry, big brother type watching you so He can smack you over the head whenever you get it wrong. He is a God of love and overflowing with joy. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Pray for an infilling of joy in this room in a remarkable way that men and women would be overcome by the happy kingdom, the joyful kingdom, that there would be laughter, laughter in this space because of the joy of God breaking out. The peace of heaven reverberates in the sound of the kingdom, a peace that passes understanding, which means it doesn't need to make sense with your circumstances because it is super superior to your circumstances. And so God is bringing peace to unearth worries, peace to dislodge spaces of anxiety that have Thanks for listening, and we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week, and we'll see you soon.